Okay, I'm going to do my usual thing with Coffee and Concepts and chat for about 15 minutes about a concept and then kind of open it up to discussion. And the concept is always connected to some extent and some way with the seminar I gave. Uh, so what I wanted to do today, and this is connected with the Atheism for Lent, which is coming up. Uh, it's actually for sale on my website. It's free for anybody on Glaze. Um, but I'm basically doing a completely new Atheism for Lent. There's every reflection is going to be different. And one of the people I'm adding to it is uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. Uh, and an excerpt from his essay, Existentialism is a Humanism. Um, and the whole essay will be included in the Atheism for Lent for people who want to read the whole thing. But I was reading that uh, last week, and it kind of connected with some of the themes I was talking about two weeks ago. So I thought I would uh, look a little bit at that essay. Um, if you want to grab it, you can get it online for free or wait for the Atheism for Lent and you'll get it. Um, so yeah, so I want to look at that essay, uh, one of the central claims of it, and then I want to look at something Lacan says that's kind of a playful uh, critique or playful kind of dig at the essay um, and see where we get. So basically in existentialism, and now I'm getting too hot, now I'm getting animated, so I'll get rid of the sweater. Um, all right, so uh, yes, existentialism is a humanism. Um, Sartre brought this essay out about two years after uh, Being in Nothingness, which is his most famous work. And the essay, uh, it was a talk that he gave to a packed auditorium, and it was kind of like a summation of the book, like the central thrust of the book. And it was Sartre's kind of way to introduce his existentialism to a wider audience. Um, and in that essay, he quotes or misquotes uh, uh, Dostoevsky uh, in The Brothers Karamazov. One of the characters says, I think this is what they actually say. They say something like, if God does not exist, then there is no objective authority um, to judge what is right or wrong. Right? And, you know, it sort of doesn't so much misquote it, but he kind of like kind of uh, puts it into the phrase, which we all probably know, if God does not exist, then everything is permissible. So Sartre quotes this, says, you know, Dostoevsky, or a character in Dostoevsky says this line, if God does not exist, everything is permissible. And he says that is the core message of existentialism, um, is an attempt to live in a world where everything is permissible. Um, and obviously not everything is permissible in reality, in terms of laws, but there is no overarching authority that tells us what is right and what is wrong. Nothing that tells you that giving to charity is right and killing a person is wrong. That is not written in any objective, mystical realm. Uh, there is no God to guarantee that or no natural law to guarantee it. So that's Sartre. Sartre says that is what I mean and what he means by existentialism. And he kind of, and he says basically what that means is that we have to uh, be absolutely, um, uh, sorry, I'm changing the speaker view here because uh, I'm recording it. Uh, that didn't work. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, what was I saying? Uh, yes. If nothing is permissible, um, 
or if everything is permissible, sorry, that just means there is no objective right or wrong. And there is no way to put our responsibility onto something else or somebody else. And he uses this famous example where he says that this student of his comes to him and asks him for some advice. He says that his brother was killed by the Nazis and he wants to go to the UK, go to Britain, join up and fight the Nazis. All right. Uh, but his mother is frail and elderly and has already lost one of her sons. And if she lost him, uh, it would likely completely destroy her. So he has this kind of choice to make. Does he stay and look after his mother and have a massive impact in one person's life? Or does he go to Britain, join up with, there's a French group there and, and fight the Nazis and be a very tiny part of something world historical. Um, and, and potentially an incredibly tiny part because he may not even be able to get out there. He may be given some administrative rule. Uh, so Sar kind of lays it out and goes that this guy is basically looking for an answer. What should I do? Stay and look after my mother or fight the, the, the Nazis? And Sartre says, in a typical existential way, he, he brilliantly says, like, there's no answer. Like, there's no, there's no way that this young man can advocate his responsibility to choose. He would love some way to do that. In fact, he's come to me for advice. He wants me to give him the answer. Uh, and he says, well, you know, the problem with that is when you look to somebody for advice, you often know the kind of advice they're going to give you. So you're already kind of like in control of what you're wanting the advice to be, right? So, uh, you know, Sartre gives the example of, well, if this person had gone to a priest who was known as a collaborator with the Germans, you would know what the guy wanted to hear. Or if he went to a priest who was known to be helping the French uh, resistance, again, that would give you a sense of what this young man wants to hear. Uh, this is what Sartre means by being condemned to freedom. He's like, you're condemned to have to make that decision yourself and stick by it. And uh, he also says in the essay later on, he goes like, and even if you believe in God, it doesn't make any difference. So this is why he kind of goes, it's not just atheistic existentialism. He says, imagine you believe in God and not even just believe in God. Let's imagine God speaks to you and clearly tells you things. You still have to decide whether that was God or the devil or just voices in your head, right? So even if God spoke to you, you still have responsibility to decide where that voice is, whether you should obey it, uh, whether it's, say it, it's a sign of mental illness or whether it's a sign of the devil or whatever. So he says, like, it doesn't, it doesn't, you can't advocate your responsibility at all. And then, I mean, one more thing about the essay, and I'll move on. He says that while then there's no ethics here, like you can't ethically say that charity give, being uh, giving to charity is good or murder or torture is bad. He says there is a kind of ethics. Um, and the ethics of existentialism is whether you're living authentically or inauthentically whether you are showing bad faith or not. And what Sartre means by that is he says, you're inauthentic if you do not take responsibility for your freedom. 
you're just and it's almost he says it's a logical mistake it's like you are lying you're you're making a logical error you're you're advocating your freedom and your responsibility you're pretending that you're not responsible and that is bad faith and that is inauthenticity uh and of course a response to that might be okay well that's not very much right it's not a very big moral thing to be in bad faith but you you could make the argument and it won't be a knockdown argument but i think you can make a persuasive argument to say that that most people cannot do horrible things without some sort of higher ideology saying it's okay like most people find it hard to for example to kill this has been statistically seen in in armies i don't know if you know but they find that as weapons became more efficient uh, soldiers still seem to miss their enemy um, at a much higher rate than expected so even though guns became more and more precise killing machines over time still the amount of missed shots seemed to decrease very little um, and they did some research and then find out what sounds obvious in a way but um, that people don't like to kill people and so you kind of miss on purpose. Most people miss on purpose. They only kill if they're in real danger, immediate danger, they're protecting somebody else. But if you're shooting at somebody from a distance, you're like, you don't want to do it. And so and sadly, you know, the army finds ways to kind of get around that. But we don't like to do, we don't like to do that. And so if you have a Sartrean ethics where you basically go, you can't, you can kill someone, but you, you're doing it and you want to do it, and you can't blame it on God or historical necessity or anything else, you are fully responsible for what you do. Um, there are still a few bad people who will do terrible things, but potentially most people with the weight of that responsibility will find it harder to do things that are that are that that we would judge as cruel. So that's a Sartrean ethics. Um, and to be an existentialist for Sartre is to realize that, that while everything is permissible, you are fully responsible for your life. And another part of the argument, which we won't delve too deeply into, but he also says that when you make a decision, you're deciding what it looks like to be human. You're deciding kind of in a way, you're making a decision about what humanity is about, what you're making a wider social decision so those are his kind of like claims um he also says which i think is very interesting he said like the atheism of the 18th and 19th centuries was an atheism that tried to say well god doesn't exist but everything pretty much stays the same you can still grind ethics and right and wrong and whatever you can still grind that in some sort of natural law you get rid of god but you can still have the the lawgiver of some kind and Sartre says, no, that's what existentialists reject. They go like, if God does not exist, or if God is dead, which is more of a Sartrean Nietzschean idea, if God is dead, which means God is absent in some way, then um, there is no way to grind ethics. And we have to bite the bullet. And of course, as, as I mentioned, Sartre says that even the religious existentialists acknowledge God is dead. If by that, and what in one sense we mean that even if you hear the voice of God, you still have to decide whether it's the voice of God. You still have freedom. You can never get rid of it. Okay, there you go. Now, then Lacan comes along and he plays with Sartre's quote of Dostoevsky. And he says, um, well, if God does not exist, 
then nothing is permissible, right? And of course, Lacan is, you know, it's a more difficult one to unpack and uh, he's, you know, very clever and playful with, with the way he says things. But you go, like, okay, what does Lacan mean by if God does not exist, then nothing is permissible? And this brings us to actually what I was talking about two weeks ago. Um, you know, at a superficial level, this is not what he means, but you could say, of course, that there are certain laws that are required for freedom to happen. So obvious example is road laws. Uh, if you, We have laws of the road that actually allow freedom to travel. If you didn't have the laws, there would be no way to really travel. And if there was no laws of flights and boats and cars and anyone could do what they want, then basically the whole transport system would collapse. So that's the Kantian freedom where you kind of have to have laws in order to have freedom. They're not mutually exclusive at all. Um, and maybe there's an element of that in what Lacan is saying. But what Lacan is saying, um, and he's always saying a number of things, but the main one is that without a kind of external law, human beings don't experience this radical freedom. They actually start to experience more and more anxiety and they start to impose their own laws on themselves and they start to minimize their own enjoyment. So it's kind of like counterintuitive. He says, once the shackles of a transcendent God dissipate um, you, in a society, what you will find is the rise of um, kind of obsessive neurotic behaviors. Um, and you will find weirdly the rise of more and more prohibitions as to how we can interact with each other, what we can do. There'll be more fear of going out, more fear of doing things um, than a society where there are prohibitions and things like that. Now, I'm going to try and connect this actually um, with what we see in contemporary society. I, I'm, I'll tell you my own personal experience in LA, which is the the city of, uh, of the demand to enjoy where you can just do what you want, right? Of like there's limited prohibitions, you know, you can uh, like in terms of sex and relationships and all of that, you kind of on the surface, it feels like anything is possible. You go, and people go to LA in order to live out their dreams. Um, but in that experience, I have found, and I know some of my friends find that increasingly, they did less and less <laughs> and stayed in more and more and find it more and more difficult to date and find it more and more difficult to engage with others and more and more frightened of that, right? So it, you were constantly told you can go out and have relationships and have sex and have fun and just go do it. Like that was, that's the, that was the, the, the demand, the Supergoa conjunction. Um, and the result was weirdly more and more isolation, more and more loneliness, more and more inability to date, um, which I think is statistically as well being shown. Um, and not only that, the people who are going out and are enjoying, you, you would see an increasing number of like, I would say almost obsessive compulsive prohibitions that they were putting on each other. So the big thing is, in LA, 
I mean, it's terrible to say, but it's kind of true, but there are so many spiritual eating disorders, right? So like eating disorders that are kind of like put on Instagram as healthy or um, good or whatever, that kind of like not all of them at all, but some of them go like, these are the people putting incredible prohibitions on what they can and can't eat, what they can and can't put in their bodies. Um, it's so many prohibitions about around alcohol and drugs i mean it's funny when i tell my friends in ireland about how people do drugs in la it's crazy because like you can't do drugs but there's so many rules and regulations around it and um you know people go to peru and get like toxins of of frogs put on their their skin and throw up and you know and this kind of thing um kind of like Whereas here, you just do drugs if you want to party, you know, like it's kind of, it's not exactly the same kind of set of very ritualized prohibitions. So this at first, and it's, it's very clever, and this is why psychoanalysis is very good, is you go, oh yeah, do you notice it in a society of per pervasiveness and permissiveness, there's all of these self-imposed restrictions and, and self-imposed isolations and anxieties and fear of the other. And we do live in the age where the anxiety-related issues are on the rise. And you might even want to, and I, I've been thinking about this a bit recently, talking to a couple of people, but I don't know how much I Yeah, I think there's something to this, is the rise in autism is interesting. Not, not severe autism, but kind of like, kind of on the spectrum, small amounts of autism, that seems to be either being better diagnosed, right? So, or it's on the rise. Um, but but aut autism often is connected as in different anxiety kind of issues, but with the need for stable environments. And then and the kind of like, like it, it's not surprising that in an age of radical instability and radical potential and, and kind of oceanic, potential, you might see the rise in people subjectively finding that, that oceanic openness profoundly difficult to navigate. Um, like obsessive compulsive disorder is obviously another one where people create these rituals that actually completely limit their enjoyment, right? Well, I've got a relative who's got obsessive compulsive disorder and, you know, it they have all of these rituals that completely limit where they can go and what they can do. Um, uh, but it's kind of like a, a way of, of controlling in some respects. So that's what Lacan means by if God is if God is dead, then nothing is permissible. And I'll say a couple more things and open up. Um, the response to this will will be one of two things or both things simultaneously which is one some people will run to new laws and prohibitions they will seek them out right and they may seek them out by going back to traditional religion they may seek them out by kind of reactionary political movements um though that is a move that will happen and you will see people often who experience a high anxiety will will be susceptible to people who offer very strict rules i even i was talking to a friend a few years ago he wanted to go to hillsong church wanted to go back because he couldn't date he was having a couldn't really find it really difficult to date and thought probably rightfully so that it would be much easier to date in an environment with kind of a lot of 
strictures and rules, right? So he was kind of like, and he didn't believe any of it, but he thought that that might actually be an easier way to do it than in this weird environment where technically everything's available. So people may either because they're convinced of it or their anxiety or whatever will move towards conservative limits or which I, the thing that I think is even more dangerous is that the, the new laws and codes and regulations and prohibitions will arise out of the very movement that thinks of itself as, as open and free. And that's why I called the seminar two weeks ago, fascist hippies and totalitarian mystics. Cause they're like, you know, it's, it's often the, the hippie commune that might become the very totalitarian regime. Um, it's, that's not uncommon to, to, to see that, to see a community that tries to live in radical freedom, increasingly find all of these rules and these ways of, of prohibiting to kind of cope with the anxiety. Um, so what's the answer? And I'll say in two minutes <laughs> what I think maybe it is, because it's not going back to some traditional um, external authority. I don't think we can do that. I think that's just fascism, really. Um, what we need is spaces where we're freed from the superegoic injunction to enjoy, where we're free not to enjoy, where we're free to kind of like not be part of this frenetic pursuit. Um, that's kind of part, that's that's what we're we're doing here. And I've talked about it a lot that like if we had a paratheological community, a church, it would be a space in which we enact a type of letting go of that frenetic experience of enjoyment of, and, and there is a Christian dimension to this, which is the law is not externally imposed. It's internally, it's within you. Right, so that's the whole Christian thing, because there is a Christian version of um, uh, if God, if God exists, then everything is permissible. There's a version of that which is Augustine. Augustine says, "Love God and do what you want." Right, and um, of course, the idea being, if you love God, if you love someone, you do what you know, you do what you enjoy doing, what they enjoy. So there's something about love that um, that is freeing. Uh, but in a very concrete way, you could say that by putting limits on yourself, like you, you give yourself a project, a job, a difficulty, a sacrifice, you are part of a community of sacrifice. Um, and a, that that uh, can be an antidote to what we're seeing with the rise of anxiety, the lowering of enjoyment and the potential return of very um, uh dangerous prohibitions I guess and that I guess if anything that's what I'm worried about is that we're living in a contemporary world where uh, freedoms will increasingly be taken away by ourselves because we are so anxious <laughs> um, yeah so okay anybody want to jump in on that and uh, agree disagree make a comment Hi, I'll start. I was thinking about the drugs thing and how you were saying it's like in LA versus like where you're at now. You know, it's just there's like, oh, I just want to have a good time and party. And in LA, it's like if they're going to do drugs, it must have some like spiritual outcome, mm -hmm. you know, to make it permissible. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I just think that's like an interesting line of thought where like if you are going to do like 
the bad thing, you still have to make it be good in the end, you know, where, you know, growing up in high school, it was just like, yeah, like there were stoners and that was that, <laughs> you know, and they, they weren't trying to like, they weren't giving themselves permission. No one was giving themselves permission. They just wanted to party. And so I, I, I don't have a point to that, but I just think like those are two interesting thoughts to compare. Yeah, no, thanks. I like I, I find it hilarious because now in Ireland and in LA, it's so different, and you see that difference so much. Like, like uh, in LA, everything in a sense has to be. I mean, like, and neither's maybe that good, but I'll give a dig at the LA one because they often think they're great. Um, is that uh, everything has to be optimized for you know maximizing your you know mindfulness or your ability to work or your everything you know everything is kind of you know you're almost like a machine that you want to be optimized where sometimes just getting drunk with friends for as a complete waste um, of money and time and energy um, there can be something very freeing about that that has precisely got no value and uh, Bataille said that's what festivals were religious festivals he said and sacrifice of the of a lamb, for example, is like the point was to make a sacrifice and for no reason whatsoever, go to a, a terrible festival where you have to use poor loos and sleep in a terrible tent and get drunk and listen to a band in the cold, but for, for no real end. And, it, and going like, actually, we need those spaces in society. <laughs> Oh yes, uh, Xavier, is that, am I pronouncing your name correctly? Jump in. Yeah, Xavier, thank you, Peter. Xavier. Uh, yes, uh, I have a question. So in regards to the parotheology community, so, you know, throughout history and even today, people still identify the church, the uh, evangelical church here as the as a refuge as a refuge right or whether that be problems that you're dealing with physically or existential life questions about like oh well the church is here to bring a be a home right to hospital or to, to be a place where you could find safe uh safeness right now and but in regards to para, the the parotheology community and i know like because um there if, if, I, if I'm interpreting it right, it's not like this community is guaranteeing any type of satisfaction, right? Or like some type of like relief from these existential dread questions, right? So what is it then that, because I know you, you spoke a bit about it. I, I, I just didn't get to hear it. Um, but what is it then that the community seeks to do with these questions then if, if not, provide some type of relief right um or even if that's the the goal like right um but yeah this is my immediate question oh great love it and you know and in, in in light of what i'm saying here um so i'll keep it really connected to this i would say that what it can offer is a relief it's a relief from the frenetic demand to enjoy it's the it's a, it if it if it can do anything and if it is successful it offers freedom from the demand to enjoy from the basically the of ob, some object that you think will make you whole and complete that that it provides a space for you to experience castration really to for you to experience 
the type of a type of unknowing, lack of satisfaction that's part of life that's woven into God. Um, so they come back to me on that, but that, that's, that would be my initial kind of like one sentence answer. It gives you relief from the pursuit of happiness. Mm. Which, which for me is, of course, with the way to find a genuine kind of depth and meaning to life is like by being freed from that super egoic injunction to enjoy, it actually allows for the lowering of anxiety and the increasing of enjoyment. But jump back on me if you wanna, if you wanna kind of take the conversation further or, or you're happy enough. <laughs> No, yeah, as as I think more about it. I'll, oh, yeah. I'll, I'll... Think, think away, but then jump back in when you want, but think away. Yeah. Um, this is so interesting. I also want to ask, you don't have to say it now, it's more of housekeeping, but I, I don't know what these seminars are or how to how to find them. Um, I get a link reminder to these and it's, it, that's so helpful. Um, but I wanted to say, okay, you spoke about the fear of oceanic openness and that freedom. And I wanted to, um, recommend this book that I just read because a character in this book experiences that, um, and she is, um, a profound, narcissist and in the text and as an actress very successful actress that started as a child and she's afraid of the ocean um it it kind of troubles her and she stays away from it and her son is um you know has autistic type qualities um and uh, the book is called the rabbit hutch by tess gertie i believe it just won the National Book Award, but the book talks about um, mysticism. It, it talks about the mystics, um, sacrifice, um, Hildegard of Bingen is a big part of it. And I just, I want to highly recommend it as a very good book that so many of these themes of freedom um, emerge in this text. And then also your point about how you know, when we have so much abundance, it we actually then will choose to make these limited, um, you know, what we actually do is make very limited, take very limited actions. And it made me think of the Montessori method with Maria Montessori. And it, this is very minor, but this view that you don't want to have a play box, a, a toy box that's full of all these toys. Um you actually just want to have a few toys, just a few that are out visible in a basket where um, you can see them. And that actually those limits then allow for more freedom. Um, you will play with more and you will learn more through the play and you, it allows space for creativity. Um, and that toys, when you have all of these toys in a toy box, they really don't get played with at all. Um, so it's quite limiting. Um, and the, another example would be clothes. You know, if you have all of these clothes, you might find that you just wear the same thing every day. Um, and it just, it's just a, a curious behavior that we have in response to excess. Mm -hmm. 
Did you did you put the book in the chat box? Because you didn't mention no, it. No, I'll do that. Let me so figure what was out. The book? And I must have missed it, but you didn't even give the title. You gave this very uh, kind oh. of pleasing description. <laughs> yeah, it's called The Rabbit Hutch. Oh, The Rabbit Hutch. Maybe you did say that. I didn't hear. Oh, Rabbit Yeah, Hutch. The Rabbit Hutch. Oh, it's so good. Oh, my gosh. It's just so good. And she talks about Simone Weil, just her use of religion, you know, she speaks about religion and violence and, um, and, and the stories of all these different people in the text that, that come together. It's just anti-sentimental and, uh, oh yes, I'll write it in the text here. Okay. Um, it's a good read. I got to figure out how to do that. Okay. Can you guys hear me? Yep. I thought I had some technical difficulties there. Um, I had a, a thought that a, a memory that popped up about how we, how we respond to excessive freedom. Um, I knew of a woman who she was eventually diagnosed uh, bipolar and I'm not sure when this happened. I'm not up on my Catholic history, but <laughs> she was Catholic. And it was at the time when apparently there, there was a papal edict that said um, congregants or whatever the right terminology is, could take the, during uh, mass, they could take the Eucharist, the wafer in their hands instead of it being placed on the tongue. And this woman developed obsessive compulsive disorder because she became convinced that uh, because of transubstantiation and it being the body of Christ, she, that she and her family, or she didn't take the wafer on, into her hand. Uh, she continued to have the priest place it on her tongue, but her family took it in their hand and they would, um, <laughs> they would then go home and then, you know, touch things in their home. And she became convinced that they were thereby spreading the body of Christ around their home in a, um, maybe, can you head down, please? <laughs> um, in a, in a, an irreverent manner and that they were therefore, thereby sinning against God. So she became obsessed with cleaning and with cleaning her hands and all of this. And, you know, it, she went to psychotherapy and eventually, uh, got help for that but it was just very interesting when as soon as she was given this freedom you can you can touch the eucharist yourself you don't have to have just the priest touch it as soon as she had that freedom she put this strange stricture on herself and you know wanted to put it on her family and when that didn't work it became an obsession so i just wanted to share that as a really that stuck with me for years as a really interesting example of yeah. uh of how we react sometimes. That's very good. And it reminds me, like, I well, I'm, I'm giving too much away here, maybe, but I think so many kids are obsessive. Because I remember when I was a kid, I was obsessive about touching taps or not standing on the cracks. And because as a child, I suppose, you know, life is so kind of vast and anxiety producing. And so obsessive compulsive stuff, I think is probably really common like that when we're young. But when it comes as an adult, obviously it's, this is where, it becomes like a, a serious issue, but even but children, we do this all the time. That like that kind of logic you were describing is the logic 
that I, as a child, would have thought and potentially been caught up in. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I like about this is um, is how like because when I was thinking about talking about you know just before I came onto the Zoom, I was trying to think of examples, and then I was just just suddenly hit by by the 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 dating world, and by kind of like how weirdly that so so many of us are have more and more difficulty kind of engaging with others and being frightened of engaging with others and the the, the possible miscommunications and all of that um that that is that feels very contemporary that feels very much part of the modern world um and uh yeah so it, it's like at first when you hear this idea of if god you know if god does not exist you know, uh, nothing is per permissive, per permissible, and go like, what does that mean? And you go like, oh yeah, weirdly, and what is it that we find it so hard to bear freedom? I mean, I guess this is by the way where where Sard and Lacan are actually very close. In that you could read, if if I was to put it in a nutshell, if I if I was to argue that Christianity at its at its height and its truth is about giving us freedom, I've just thought what Dostoevsky thought in his parable of the grand inquisitor uh you know christ is arrested because he comes back and he's giving too much freedom and the church arrests christ um and they threaten to kill him because they're like the people can't cope with freedom like they can't you see and, they, and the grand inquisitor says you're an idiot to refuse the devil whenever the devil said turn their stone into bread because people feed people first and then they will be virtuous you know this there's like, you know, so the, the inquisitors going like, we don't, we don't have any time for you, Christ. And it's a beautiful parable, which I should put in the atheism for Lent, actually brilliant. Um, uh, uh, that doesn't have an easy answer. Um, but if, if you say there's something about radical freedom in, in the gospels, and then if you say that existentialism is the philosophy of that, existentialism is the philosophy of, embracing this radical freedom then psychoanalysis can be seen as the technology to help you do it that's why i think existential psychoanalysis are kind of come about it around about the same time as sartre says we're condemned to be free and we, we we're terrified of our freedom and then in one way psychoanalysis is a is a is a is a practice that's designed to help you come to terms with your freedom um so that's how i see those three things as linked can I give a real life example? Because <laughs> mm -hmm. you were talking about dating. So I've been separated for like five months oh. and it's all good. But like, you know, my spouse and I have both been out there on the apps, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, it's just not a great time. <laughs> and I don't, I don't like it. You know, I don't, I don't. And then I have like girlfriends who've gone through divorce and whatever. And they're like, oh, get out there. I'm like, I don't, I don't want that like and I've oddly found myself like reconnecting with people that I've I know already mm -hmm. yeah. like I don't want I don't want a new person you know like I want someone I already know from like my past if if I want anybody at all but like it's just kind of odd to see my to kind of like watch my own behavior like in action and what I'm actually doing versus like what the world tells me I can and should do like I'm not doing that at all and it's it's just kind of wild to 
see how I operate like in this new sphere, you know? Yeah. Oh, no, listen, that, that, the reason why I use the dating one is because I think so many of us can relate to it. It's painful, it's painful how much we can all relate to it. And, you know, I have friends who are, I'm thinking of a couple of friends who uh, in LA are kind of, they're, they're young, they've got money, they're, they're, they're successful, they've got like everything that would make you think that, oh, they should be out there doing, you know, ex, you know, meeting lots of people. And they're all, everybody is isolated, you know, it's but he is like struggling and, and yet the demand is to enjoy that's the clever that's the crazy thing is the demand on you and on every is is go out there there's no limits there's no you know there's absolute freedom and strangely that demand you know with our freedom you know you've, you've got all this freedom technically now like I don't know too much but I'm guessing you've got all this freedom you've got this possibility but it's 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 actually potentially a, a, a freedom that is that is painful that is anxiety producing that kind of grinds yeah uh, <laughs> that's why I want and I wish like I wish we could all be hanging out together I, I want to get back to doing stuff in Belfast but because I, I genuinely believe in a community um we were just mentioning there with Xavier that that um where we're freed from this <laughs> this 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 absolutely anxiety producing freedom and we can be free to be unhappy and to not look for someone and to be lonely and of course the irony is that type of environment can be the environment where you meet. so you're maybe you maybe your attraction to somebody in the past potentially is precisely because you might even go like I don't even need to date them I just want to hang out with them there's somebody I like and I'm safe but ironically that might that might lead to a more a better relationship than you know you going out and searching for something yeah uh, so no it is tough <laughs> it's tough out there i wanted to make a comment about um xavier's question and your response um and just to hear more about it but this question of what i think he asked what then does pyrotheology provide and you said something about there are spaces where, you know, you're free to enjoy or not to enjoy. And then you spoke about the idea of sacrifice and the ability to enjoy waste uh, with no, you know, on purpose. There, there's no reason. And I just, um, I found that so interesting because we do um well the first thing I thought about this is why I need a bit more context because then I started thinking and I wasn't listening <laughs> but I started thinking about Mary and Martha and when Mary um takes the expensive oil the pint of oil nard and then breaks it on Jesus's feet and then washes his feet with her hair um and how this is seen as just an extravagant waste and can't you spend this money on the poor? And then Jesus's response being with the poor will always be with you. But if you did know that you were going to die, wouldn't you then, wouldn't part of the freedom be to, to have that extravagant um, waste in ways? I, I don't know, I don't know if waste is the right word. Um, and I also think now this is a more country example because I'm from the American South and the 4th of July, <laughs> it's um, 
it's also an example of this complete waste that people actually really, really enjoy with fireworks. Mm -hmm. You People will get the most outlandish, expensive fireworks and just shoot them off. And it's so enjoyable because it is kind of a waste. You can never use them again. It's just in that moment. And it, there is something that is a release there in some way because it is a complete waste. So I, but what I missed was just your kind of the connecting that to the pyrotheology, just connecting that, like the value of that or where that comes from psychologically or what's happening there. Um, So I missed that, but. So, you know, and, and to echo what you're saying, I mean, I was thinking fireworks as soon as you were talking, but even like um, in dating, because we we're talking about dating is often the, it's actually doing something extravagant that's a waste that is actually the thing that creates desire between the two people. So, for example, you might go like, you know, there's the typical pragmatic guy or whatever who might go like, why, why pay for the expensive champagne when we can have the, the Prosecco or whatever, which is wise and sensible nine times out of ten but the point of the extra money isn't because of the the drink is 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 it tastes better often doesn't um it's actually the waste <laughs> we we don't think of it like that like consciously we're not thinking that it's the waste that's actually what generates the desire like the the best present in some ways is the present which costs a lot and has no value like flowers are kind of an example of that and other things and and what Bataille kind of explores, and I'll just, oh yeah, I'll say this very quickly, but it's very good, is he says like, the world cannot exist in pure economy where you give something for something in exchange, right? Economy, it, there has to be gift. And gift is the, the giving of something without return or, and sacrifice is connected with that. It's because it's the giving of something without return. So even when you buy a round of drinks for a friend or you brought, bring a bottle of wine to your party, these aren't just small things. Society can't run without there being extravagance and waste. And the more you live in a society where everything is optimized and life hacked, you're actually getting rid of something. So yeah, so I wanted to echo that. Um, and in in relation to the power, power of theology and this idea of the freedom from enjoyment, um, if you take the idea, say I've talked about it before, but we're going deeper here where I, I talk about... Um, the tyranny of happiness, the more you, you know, this this frenetic pursuit of enjoyment that actually makes you anxious and unhappy. And what we need is spaces, not where we're free to pursue what will make us happy, but where we're freed from the pursuit of happiness, where we're free to kind of like, to, to, you know, I, my example, sometimes I think of it like a party where you can go and pretend you're having fun, but you go to the bathroom and you know, take a breather. But in LA, there is nothing. You, there's no bathroom you can go to. They're doing drugs in there as well. Like, and it's enjoyment everywhere. You can't find freedom to not enjoy. <laughs> and, and so, uh, pyrotheology is the bathroom in the party where you can go and go, Oof. um, and be free from the that frenetic pursuit. And I would, I want to argue that that frenetic pursuit of of wholeness and happiness of of this object that will complete. It's not just that it creates anxiety or it minimizes enjoyment. It also opens up um, more draconian societies of prohibition. It creates 
all sorts of problems in economics. Like it, there's so much is connected to it. And I, I connect it with the idea of sin, as in sin, not as a moral category, but original sin meaning original lack, that we feel that we are having a lack and that there's something that can fill, fill that lack. And the forgiveness of sin means not. So if you think of sin as a lack, um, so I owe you a thousand dollars. Someone can pay that and then they fill the lack. The thousand dollars is a hole, a gap. I owe you a thousand dollars. Someone can pay it or someone or you can forgive the debt. And to forgive the debt is not to pay it. It's to say that the nothingness that is something is nothing. So the nothingness that is binding you to this stress and this job you don't want to forgive the debt is to say the nothingness that is something is really nothing. It doesn't fill the lack. It it robs it of its weight and sting. And so for me, forgiveness of sin is not payment of sin. So basically, a paratheology, a church is the place where you feel the forgiveness of sin, which means nothing moral. It simply means that the lack, that we always think we're lacking something, that if only we could fill it, if only we could have the thing that would make us whole and complete, that is itself diminished. That in itself goes. It's not filled. It's 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 the yoga's rendered light. Um, that's what I mean by kind of the 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 refuge where we're freed from the pursuit of what will make us happy, um, which has lots of moral political connotations. <laughs> That also, I should say, doesn't commit anybody to, like it doesn't, this is not about kind of giving up desire. Um, it's simply about enjoying. So desire is the name for a lack. I desire something because I don't have it, right? You know, And um, desire is part of what makes us human. We desire. But what, what's difficult is we don't desire desire. We, we, we think we desire the end of desire. We want our football team to win. And of course, that will make us happy. But if our football team wins every single game, we will no longer be happy, right? Because what we desire is desire. We desire to, to see our team losing sometimes so that we can re can, we can reconfigure it. So pleasure is getting what you want. Enjoyment is is the not getting what you want um, in psychoanalysis. So there's a certain sense in which the answer for me is to enjoy and there's a great book by Todd McGowan called enjoying what you don't have right it's all about this but is to enjoy what you don't have is to somehow enjoy your desire and of course occasionally getting things that you like right of course there's moments where your football team wins and you're happy right but but actually realizing that that it's sacrifice and gift and struggle that that animates um so yeah I don't know if that uh, clarifies anything. Come back on that if you want any more. <laughs> um, I was waffling. No, thank you so much. I do want to say, though, just to, to challenge that a bit, or maybe it is an example of what you're saying, but I haven't had an appetite for the past week. And it, um, so I didn't have this desire to eat and to enjoy, you know, there was no enjoyment from food. And it was, it, it distressed me. Um, it did. That lack distressed me. And it returned. I don't know why. I don't know what was happening, but it returned. And I felt such relief. Um, so I did, I did miss, miss that 
desire. Yes. No, you're 100%. No, that is, and let me just say, that's a brilliant example of what I want to say. <laughs> um, and to, to clarify, it's like, yeah, the reason why I'm not a fan of Westernized Buddhism is because for me, the answer is not to get rid of your desire. Um, I think it's to enjoy your desire. So it's to enjoy the hunger, to enjoy the disruption. To enjoy, so yeah, like 100%. The reason why I'm jumping in on that is because it's sometimes people think that I'm saying about somehow getting rid of, rid of the lack. But what I just want to do is rob it of, its, of, of the idea that there's something that will stop it up. Oh, can I give one example, actually, is that like the perfect example, I think, in contemporary society is retirement, where someone's working in a job, it's tough, they don't like it, but they're fantasizing when they retire, they'll be able to maybe sit by the beach, not have to work. They've got this fantasy of the, you know, kind of like just enjoying life and just contentment. But that in itself can be the thing that the person dies early. It's like, you actually need struggle and something that you give yourself to. That's what gives you meaning. The problem within our society is often we have to struggle and sacrifice for things that don't give us meaning. So we're in jobs that we don't like. We are not fulfilled. We're alienated in our work. So that's really difficult. But ideally, if you can be doing something that you enjoy and struggling and finding it difficult, that that's where... I think real kind of meaning can derive. So yes, yeah, so I love that example about food. Yeah, like if you know, getting rid of desire for me is um is uh, uh almost as bad. Like there's there's basically um you know not never getting what you desire or trying to get rid of desire entirely. There's something about uh, enjoying our desire that's key. I just wanted to throw out there, you've got a bit of a line stacking up. I don't know if you can see that some hands are raised. Oh, sorry, I didn't see. No. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Daisy. Uh, Kristen, you're the first person I see. Jump in. Okay. Um, just a question about, uh, can you hear me okay? Yeah. I'm in a weird town. Okay. Um, so I was on a hike yesterday and I was following this path and I the path like kind of went away at one point and I got really turned around and freaked out. And I started thinking about how um, I've, in that moment, I got really upset and felt like kind of betrayed by nature or something, I don't know, or the path or whatever. And it made me think a lot about what has drawn me to pyrotheology and your work and how I have felt many times being on a path, I end up somewhere where I am betrayed by the path, you know, like I am like, oh, this isn't what I thought it was. And it has turned to, you know, to nothing. Um, but I'm wondering if like related to what we're talking about that I guess I, I struggle with then resolving what that means for the day-to-day -day. like I am constantly even with dating for example I think a lot of us stop the process because the path has led to a feeling of betrayal you know and and like this isn't what I thought it was but at the end of the day and I, I like the bathroom comment but is that something where we're just going through this we're going through the process and the experience of going through the loss of it in community with others is the answer or like I guess I still I kind of I tend to be like okay well I should never go hiking by myself you know or whatever which I wouldn't do but that's kind of the answer tend to me tends to go between nihilism and um I don't know the 
like going all in on something and I feel like I I have a hard time finding the um the right ground which I'm searching for through I think some of your work but I guess how how would you respond to that I mean I love the analogy uh although it's a very true analogy because it's literally a hike <laughs> um I'm kind of you know I I I I resonate with what you're saying. So I almost don't hear a question. Like, what's your kind of question? And it's like, because I, I like the analogy. Like, yeah, I guess I was asking, because I still felt at the end of the day that I was, um, didn't have a, uh, like, I, I still felt betrayed by the path or whatever. I, I guess I'm trying to confirm with you that this is the path of, Pirate theology because I um, I was feeling like I tend to continue to go back and forth between this feeling of like total betrayal to okay here's a new promise to, that I can follow to deliver to total betrayal and like losing those things and never finding the path that I but I still need a path you know and so um, how I guess the question is like is this just the path of experiencing that um, in community or I'm new to your work. So this is me trying to figure that out as we go. Oh, how, how new are you to it? This is nice to hear. That well, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, very new, oh. a couple of months, I think. Oh, right. How did you, and how did you connect with it? I, um, I heard you on a Rob Bell podcast, which I never listened to. I don't know why I did that day, but I, um, and I've completely been away from the church in any way over the last decade, but was like, felt very hurt through that and, um, and still love theology and philosophy. And so when I heard you, I dove in and like read as I read most of your books and listened to as much as I can in a short period of time. And I found that funny because I'm like in this frenetic pursuit of the answer as you're telling us not to be, you know, that this is the problem. But, um, but yeah, I still feel like I haven't found, I, I'm not sure if this is, uh, the point is just acknowledging the, that path. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, really beautifully articulated where like you the, the two problems are you know we either try to give up desire or we you know try to find what the answer is and um the you know the the, the idea in psych the psychoanalysis that i'm interested in is that it's not a, a resignation it's actually this is a really like, the good news <laughs> the good news of eternal restlessness the good news of that actually the bad news is if is both of those options. Like if you could either shut off your desire, you would lose something profoundly human. Um, or if and if you ever got the thing that you really wanted, which sometimes happens, um, it turns into disgust. You know, you win the lottery, people who win the lottery, people who, you know, get the career that they want. Um, these are the, that's the bad news. The good news is somehow to find a enjoyable restlessness um, I, that, that does have moments of respite. I, this is why I like, I hate sports. I don't know why I use sports as an analogy. I have not, I don't watch any sports, but, um, but it is actually a great analogy because you need your team to win every now and again, and you do get pleasure from the wins. Um, but the enjoyment is from 
the, the watching your team, the history of your team, the losses, the struggles, all of that is is the enjoyment. And 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 the football never ends. The game never ends. There's never a finish to football, right? No one ever wins the football. It just goes on forever. So it's easy to say this, and it's really hard to do it. And this is why you know you mentioned we need community. I think to do this is that to somehow be able to enjoy not resign ourselves to restlessness, not resign ourselves to never getting the thing that will make us happy, but actually realizing that we don't want it. Um, in fact, if I could say one thing about that, uh, uh, Lacan famously, very like Freud said, anxiety comes from not getting what you want. So there's an anxiety when you're very far from the thing that you want. And Lacan turned it around and said, well, actually, at a very profound level, anxiety is when you're too close to what you want. Um, and he used the example of a child with a mother, that if the child and the mother don't separate and the child remains too close to the mother, it actually creates a huge amount of psychotic anxiety. Um, so Lacan beautifully says that you don't want, you don't want the answer. You don't, you, you like, there's, it's, a, it's actually, and that's why connected with everything I'm saying tonight is, um, is why freedom to enjoy creates anxiety because it actually doesn't, it actually minimizes enjoyment. You say to your child, you can do whatever you want. You can play Nerf battles all night. You can eat all the chocolate you want. You can stay up all night and watch anything you want. And actually the child creates so much anxiety in the child because as they get what they want, they realize the horror of it. So basically I'm affirming what your intuition is, which is, is we need we need communities where we are able to enjoy the restlessness of struggle and finding a uh, something we can give ourselves to, um, but 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 freed from the fantasy of the final answer. Don't know if that yeah. helps, <laughs> but here, but I'm yeah. so glad you're you're here. I'm so glad you're part of this. Um, that's really really lovely <laughs> really so to hear. Much. Yeah. Michael, jump in. Yeah, can everyone hear me okay? Yeah. All right. Uh, I just want to say, yeah, thank you very much for this feed. Um, and I'm in the thralls of COVID, so I'm a little brain foggy, but I promise there'll be a question at the end of this. Oh. Um, but I find it really, uh, I'm coming from Denver, so the talks about drugs and dating are really pertinent. Um, I was just talking with a friend yesterday about how a lot of our stoner friends not only try to they try to justify marijuana like from this holistic perspective of like how it's super healing and um, not only spiritually, but like bodily. And, and she's like, well, that's actually not true. It, it can be just as addictive as other drugs and it can be just as harmful to your body as other drugs. Um, but sort of like the, the emphasis for people to give themselves permission and then justify it, I think is really curious, especially coming from a state where it's already illegal. So it's like, how do you find additional pleasure in that way? So, um, I was thinking a little bit about that. I really liked what you said about um, enjoyment and pleasure as kind of these two aspects of permission. Because I'm curious about that because it seems like an inverted relationship to me. Someone mentioned the fireworks. Uh, I come from New Mexico. And so for most of the year, there's a firework ban. Um, but since that ban's in place, you know, we light up fireworks anyways, and it's fun or it's, there's more pleasure. But then around 4th of July or during the winter when the fire bans drop, you know, we light them off and there's, there, we still, there's like different types of enjoyment, I guess. And so I'd be curious to talk about that as well in the context of permission. Um, and then um, <laughs> I do have some notes, sorry. Um, 
Um, okay. Someone mentioned Simone Vey as well. And so you mentioned psychoanalysis kind of as the, the technology to deal with this freedom. Um, I, it, something struck me like, um, she mentioned Simone Vey, I thought of her book, Power of Words. And how she talks about um, basically the Bill of Rights, she thinks is one of the worst documents to ever be published. And she says, because you put the rights on paper and suddenly it sucks the vacuum out of all the power that those rights are kind of like, she's like, they're already there. Putting them down actually removes them a lot of their power. So she, she's trying to say the permission of giving people rights from a social um, perspective, like as a society, um, is really diminishing of those actual rights. And she's like, we should never have done that. And so um, if psychoanalysis might be the tool at a personal level for freedom, I'm trying to think like at a societal level, what would you suggest or what would you think about in terms of that? Wow, that's all fantastic questions. <laughs> um, that would that would uh, yeah that we will hopefully unpack multiple times over the next over the course of the next year or two. There's a few questions in there, and I'll maybe just grab one because I know we're running out of time, and I want to hear from Jack and Courtney. Um, um, so you're saying about uh, enjoyment and enjoyment being connected to prohibition, yes. But what was, there was a question in that. What was it? Um, yeah, did you want to make? Kind of just like the, the inversion of like doing something without permission and doing something with permission. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I just thought that was, this is really fascinating because in terms of God, it's like, it's both, it's both and I guess, depending on what you think about whether God exists or not, but where's permission in general? Yeah, well, oh yes, it made me think of this. I'll throw this in. Is that because one of the other things that Lacan meant by this phrase, which I didn't really get into, but connected, absolutely connected, is that that actually whenever there's a law, you're able to get enjoyment from breaking it. And uh, once there's no, so an example I do often use uh, is purity rings. You know, like in a society where sex is free, purity ring is a technology to help people have sex. Because as soon as you say you can't have sex, it makes it desirable. Like once sex becomes so permissible and, and so possible, it actually can take the desire out of it. So you have, so purity rings provide a, a and so supposedly statistically people do have more sex when they have purity rings but and it makes sense because you've got a prohibition and the prohibition generates desire and in in psychoanalysis enjoyment is always connected they say with the real which basically means with a prohibition or a transgression like enjoyment always has some connection to disruption to and, and so for a, a typical hysteric in terms of psychoanalysis, they desire what's under threat of being taken away. So an hysteric can often feel jealous um, because they need to, in order to love or to enjoy or to have desire, they need a threat that the thing they have is going to be taken away. If the thing is completely accessible, they lose interest. For an obsessive, they desire what's impossible. So they're always desiring a partner who they can't have, who's going out with somebody else. And they don't realize their desire is actually sparked by the impossibility. Their enjoyment is sparked by the impossibility. Any more than the other person doesn't, they don't realize that their desire is sparked by jealousy. You know, they almost, in fact, like here's a, you know, example where they might want their partner to actually, um, actually want their job more than them. You know, because actually by wanting the job more than them, it makes them jealous and makes them desire them. The moment that they would say, well, I'm going to leave my job for you, the person's like, oh, shit, 
you've just done that and now I don't desire you. Now they didn't realize it, but they're like, oh, I only desired you because I was jealous because you put your job first. <laughs> so we're all caught in these really interesting things, but the idea is and enjoyment is connected in various sophisticated ways with prohibitions, impossibilities, obstacles. And I'm always looking for those, like in societal terms, because you actually your big question is about society. But when you look at um, what's the enjoyment people get from, and I use this in the talk actually, so I won't say too much, but what's the enjoyment people get from transgressing, say COVID rules? And what enjoyment do people get from slavishly in, in, uh, doing them, right? They, they, diff there's different types of enjoyment, but there's usually enjoyment. And um, so, yeah, so anyway, I just wanted to mention that. Um, and then your other question about uh, the societal stuff, I'll maybe leave that for now to let somebody else jump in. But that's a very good question. <laughs> uh, Jack, do you want to jump in? Thank, thank you, Pete. Yes, thanks. Uh, really quick. Um, and, and I think Zizek says something about um, uh, this vis-a-vis -vis Paul and um, not eating meat offered to idols. But, you know, the consistent theme is the importance of constraint. Um, for enjoyment and for goal-directed behavior, whether that constraint be externally imposed or uh, internally imposed. Um, so admittedly that constraint is necessary um, for there to be desire. But I wanna push back a little bit gently um, on, on something here. Uh, with the question, yes, yes, constraint is necessary, but um, to enjoy goal-directed behavior. But there's a reason this is theology and pyrotheology and not a football club. So, and that's, there's a telos here. Um, and, and so I guess what I'm pushing back against, or rather in, in a way by way of asking for clarification is, there seems to be something more at play here than a kind of hypomanic hamster wheel of imminent jouissance. Mm -hmm. There's some vector or trajectory or telos or something. So could you could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, no, thank you for that. Um, I, I give you one great example from Shizek, as you mentioned him. I love this. His reading of the, the, the commandment, you shall have no other God before me, um, is that uh, it's God saying, you'll have no other God in front of me. I mean, obviously you'll have other gods behind my back, but just don't do it like when I'm looking. And um, he says that he uses this example by saying like, that's what theology gives you. It gives you prohibitions that you can secretly disobey. Just like a, just like a mother or father might say, you don't get drunk in this house, but they'd be disappointed if you didn't go out and get drunk with your friends, right? You know, like they're almost giving you permission. They, they're giving you laws that make you enjoy transgressing the laws but they also enjoy that you're transgressing the laws <laughs> um so yeah anyway i just wanted to throw that example because i think that's such a funny reading of um that commandment um the, i don't know jack if this if this is an answer or not so come back to me on this but the theological dimension for this for me is if if the traditional religious god is the god of the um who tells us that we're orchestrated that all of us, to, by dint of being human, have a certain amount of dissatisfaction that will never be overcome. That's part of our existence, it's part of our reality. And there's one exception to that, and that's God. Or in political terms, we're all peasants, feudalism. We're all, none of us can, 
uh, hope to be allured. None of us can hope to get out of the environment that we're in. But there's one exception, which is the Lord and the Lady. Like they're they're the ones you're getting it, not us. So if there's that system, um, and just to contrast that with our contemporary system, in our contemporary world, it's so different from feudalism. We can choose who we go out with, who we marry. Uh, we can supposedly change our socioeconomic positioning, all of that. That's why I think it's the age of anxiety. I don't think autism and other and certain anxiety issues may have presented themselves in the same way in feudalism and feudal societies because you just didn't have you had it was worse, but you did not have the anxiety of thinking, oh, could I be? Uh, iron worker could I be a farmer could I be a social influencer <laughs> you just were what you wear and you married who you married anyway so there's that then if we have contemporary society which is the god of the demand to enjoy which is no you don't have to be castrated everybody around you is having a ball everybody in social media and movies and you can have a ball too you there's no constraints on you you can technically achieve what you want to achieve and be who you want to be so in one everyone's castrated except for god two nobody has to be castrated which is the age of anxiety then parotheology is everyone is castrated including god like that's the theological move of christianity is that the, that you're freed from this fantasy of wholeness and completeness because even God is not whole and complete. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, not just in that line, but in the whole, in the whole incarnation, et cetera, is that there's something about Christianity that says you don't have to fantasize that the person next door to you has got everything. Reality doesn't have everything. Reality is self-divided. And that's salvation. That's actually the enjoyable dimension. Now, I don't know if that's what you mean by the, but I, but that's the theological dimension for me. But Jack, do you want to come back on that and clarify? Uh, yeah, it? yeah. So, I mean, I would push back on that uh, yeah. to some degree because I think that that's a can be a fairly accurate description of certainly evangelical Christianity or or a neo-Thomistic Catholicism or a whole lot of Christianity. But if we look back towards a classical tradition. Um, and I'm thinking Nicholas of Cusa or or um, the the Desert Fathers or what have you. There is not this necessarily this sense that the good, the true, and the beautiful is is articulable by an authority that is a yes or no answer. You're on our team or not. But there's a sense of a transcendence that's always out of our grasp. It is an orienting vector. It's like a north. You never get to absolute north. But it is a it is a trajectory, and, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because, you know, the devil's advocate would say, "Well, joy sounds for the sake of fucking what? My distraction that I move from, you know, on the hamster wheel from one." So, so is it just that we keep ourselves entertained? And that's why I bring out the point is that there's a dimension to theology, even a theology that's in response to the privations we suffer through evangelical theologies, et cetera, that speaks to something beyond uh, a football club. Yes. Yeah, no, here I get, and by the way, Jack, thank you for being part of this. I, we should have more of these discussions. And this is, I don't know how long you've been around, but we have done, a, I will occasionally go back and do stuff on some of the mystics. And um, someone I like, Jean-Luc Marion, is a contemporary thinker I really like. But suffice to say, 
Um, the, the position of the mystics, um, I think, is a legitimate way of trying to solve the same problems that I'm exploring, right, and that we're exploring here. Now, while I have my critiques of that, and while I currently have kind of moved away from that, that type of thinking for this more psychoanalytic stuff, when I started Icon, Icon was genuinely created for space for saying, if you believe God is a hyper-reality that can never be grasped, that in a sense keeps our desire alive through a type of saturating hyper-presence, or if you believe God is the name for a gap, God is the name for a, um, an impossibility, both of those are not in philosophical terms and metaphysics of presence. Neither of those fall foul of what in theology would be called idolatry. Um, and so I'm kind of saying that to go, I, I respect that the, 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 the line of thought that you're talking about. Now, I might be critical of it in ways that we should dive into whenever we've got more time, but I respect it. But do you want to say anything a final thought on that before I invite Courtney. No, I think that would, I, I look forward to that conversation. Um, that's valuable. That also one one final recommendation um, for the group. Uh, David Bentley Hart's The Experience of God Being Consciousness Bliss, which Satchitananda. So he's taking a a classically understood uh, approach to to what do we mean when we actually talk about a God, not a daimon, but the ground of being and relating it almost uh, syncretically across yes. traditions. So it's uh, it'd be interesting to make that part of the conversation, but thank you. Yeah, maybe, um, you know, maybe you could recommend an essay we could study, because that's what I like to do, is do essays occasionally, and we could, but um, I am, I like, I am sympathetic to that position, although you're right that I kind of am not like completely there yet. So that conversation we will have in more depth um, and I'll look forward to that. So appreciate it. And Courtney, lastly, you before we jump out because we've been gone over. Anybody wants to jump out, you're always free to jump out, Courtney. <laughs> well, I I hate to deviate from the, the area we're in right now, but I was going to go back to... Um, to something that Kristen said, and of course now I can't remember what it was she said that sparked this thought. Um, but I was thinking of just as a, a personal experience um, of delving into pyrotheology and all of your work and and the psychoanalytic stuff and you know all of it. Um, I've been I've been following your work for several years now, even though I had I'd only just recently joined the Patreon community. Um, but I still, I still struggle. It's, it's not like it's, it's words fail me. It's like I've given intellectual assent, but living it out in my daily life is still a huge struggle, especially because, um, there are only two other people that in my circle that I can really talk to about it <laughs> uh, in person. Um, and a, a particular experience I ha have had, and it's kind of an ongoing thing, is that um, my family, there are a lot of 
a lot of singers in my family and four generations and we like to get together and sing and everybody's in the same church denomination. Um, I'm not anymore, but nobody really is aware of that because I haven't had the guts to actually confront that with my family. Um, but I still enjoy singing with my family, but what they want to sing is hymns out of the hymnal. And I struggled really hard for about a year um, with sitting with my family and singing these hymns together because with every song I was, you know, I'm sitting, I'm singing, but I'm also, as I'm singing, analyzing the words and thinking, no, I don't believe that anymore. No, I don't believe that anymore. Nope. I don't believe that anymore. <laughs> and I, um, I presented this dilemma to my friend, Scott, whom you, uh, Pete, you met him at wake. Oh, Scott yeah. from Oklahoma. Yeah. Um, and he said, he just very bluntly said, you're still in fundamentalist thinking. Um, so I had, I had the freedom to sing or not to sing, but instead I was putting these, these rules upon myself of, well, I can sing this, but I can't sing that. And, you know, trying to make sense of it in my head and in my practice and Scott said, no, you are, you are using the fundamentalist mindset you were raised in and you are putting it on your new situation. And that is what's stealing your enjoyment of singing with your family. And I was like, oh, <laughs> so I just wanted to, I wanted to share that uh, just as a, a tangible example of maybe how, how this, how this works out in one area of life for one person. Um, um. Well, that's it's a lovely way. Easy. Yeah, that's a lovely. That's a lovely thing to end on. Then as a positive like that, and it's so true because if you say so, if anybody sings, for example, Jesus ascended into heaven, that's an analogy. That's a metaphor anyway, because nobody believes that he literally. Even if you're fundamentalist Christian, you don't believe that literally he flew into heaven. You know, so yeah, so that's that's very good to kind of be able to expand into metaphor and analogy. Wonderful. Well, thank you, everybody. Uh, that was I, I really enjoy these. Um, hopefully, uh, long may they continue. Um, we, uh, we're going to be kicking off New Year, same kind of time. I might move everything half an hour early, just now that I'm in uh, in the UK. Uh, but I appreciate all your involvement and all of the great comments and questions. And so, thank you so much. Um, have a great night or a great day. Bye-bye.